0: Hi everyone, it's Andrea Ferretti, and this is episode 15 of Yoga Land. Today my guest is chef and nutritionist Rebecca Katz. Up until now, the podcast has focused solely on the yoga practice and teaching, but it's always been my intention to expand that scope just a little bit and talk about things that yogis care about. When you do yoga, I think it's safe to say that you become very mindful of what you put inside your body and how you feel when you eat. So with that in mind, I wanted to bring Rebecca on the show. I was introduced to Rebecca's work quite honestly through unfortunate circumstances. In September of 2014, I was diagnosed with breast cancer. In fact, right about the time this podcast will air, I'll be celebrating my two year anniversary since being diagnosed. And I will put links to some of my past essays about my experience with cancer on the show notes page if you want to learn more about that. But for now, we will focus on the positive. When I was diagnosed, a friend of mine sent me one of Rebecca's cookbooks. It's called The Cancer-Fighting Kitchen, and it is wonderful. It's geared very much toward people who are undergoing chemotherapy. And even though I didn't have to go through, through chemotherapy, the book is still now a staple in my family's life. I've been cooking a long time. I grew up in a family where food was very much the focal point, And I learned to cook from my mother, who is a great cook. And yet this cookbook kind of brought everything together for me. She is just so skillful at making delicious recipes really accessible and easy. And so now I have three of her cookbooks. She doesn't uh, focus just on cancer-fighting recipes. And I'll put links to those on the show notes page as well. But on this episode, I decided we'd focus on her work in the cancer-fighting space. She has a great four-pronged approach to choosing foods that create an inhospitable environment for cancer cells in your body. Um, So that's what we're going to talk about today. And this is obviously an approach that can be helpful and beneficial in preventing diseases of all kinds, because it is just very logical and based on current science. So enjoy the episode. So today, we're going to focus on one area of your expertise as a chef and a nutritionist, and that is nourishing people who are going through cancer treatment and beyond. And I was introduced to you through your book, The Cancer-Fighting Kitchen, a few years ago. And as you can tell from all of our correspondence over the past year, I'm basically a super fan. But as a journalist, I also notice how well-sourced the book is. In other words the health advice is sound, and it's backed up by studies. So I'd love to know two things. First, how you came to write this book. And second, what did you have to do to gather all of the information for the book? Great question. My first book was called One Bite at a Time, Nourishing
1: Recipes for Cancer Survivors and Their Friends. And that came out in 2004. And it came out at a time when talking about food and Cancer was like inviting ants to a picnic. It just, the two were not really talked about. And I came to writing that book from a more personal perspective because my father had been diagnosed with cancer in 2000 when I had just, I was just at the beginning of my career. I had just graduated from culinary school, I was working in restaurants and I went to take care of him and try to feed him. And I realized as a trained professional, I I really didn't know quite what to do. It was extremely humbling. And so I had to improvise because there really wasn't anything written at the time. I whipped up smoothies and blended soups, but I knew there must be more. And so that was a very strong impetus. Because my father, I mean, food was the platform of his life. I mean, he
0: lived, breathed it, loved it. So that must have been hard for him to not be able to and for you to not be able to give him what he needed.
1: Exactly. So fast forward, we got him through his radiation treatment. And I went back to the West Coast and I got a phone call from Wales Cancer Help Program here in Bolinas. And it was one of the first cancer help programs of its kind. And they do about eight to 10 week-long retreats for cancer patients or people in different stages of their cancer journey. And this was back in 2000, again, 1999, 2000. And I crossed myself off the restaurant schedule. And I, I went to Commonweal for a week. And I cooked three meals a day for people who were experiencing all sorts of different issues around food and their treatment. Like it was what was truly a transformative experience. I, I had all these preconceived notions and all this fear about cooking for people with cancer sure and basically what happened was i just dropped into that place of trying to nourish people and not trying to quote unquote cook really healthy like with capital h but really focusing on taste and flavor and people really responded and People started gathering in the kitchen and all of these preconceived notions sort of went by the wayside. And then I started uh, my, really my career teaching and cooking for, at that point, my early career, cooking for people with cancer and teaching their families how to cook for them. So you can't get a better boot camp than that, you know? Anyway, that was where my first book came from, that personal experience. Then fast forward to 2009 when the Cancer Fighting Kitchen was published. At the time, in about 2007, I went back and got my Master's of Science in Nutrition and Health Education. So now you're a double threat. Now I'm a double (laughs) threat. Yeah. Now I'm a double threat. And I did it for the purpose of really always wanting to stand behind the stove, right? But wanting to be able to have the language to translate the science to the plate so that when I was dealing with nutritionists and oncologists and other healthcare practitioners, I could hear what they were saying and then translate that to something that somebody who was dealing with an illness could put their taste buds around, Mm. you know? Mm -hmm. And- one of the things that I learned when I was getting my master's was how critical it was to really source and really examine studies, like to source your resources like a journalist. Yep. And where, you know, like we, we had to go through these exercises where we had to take seminal studies and bust them apart. Like, is that really true? What's the bias? Where are they coming from? Where's the strengths of the study? Where are the weaknesses of the study? So I really got my chops when I was going through my master's. And all of a sudden, because my interest certainly was in, in cancer and food, all of, all of a sudden I started seeing all of these studies start to pop up about cancer and food. And information was coming from all different sides of the story, you know? Mm-hmm. Now, uh, I would say in 2016, there is so much information to wade through. Right. That you really
0: have to almost have a PhD. Well, that's <laughs> why I'm actually grateful for you. You know, I mean, what you're describing is exactly what I can sense when I read your books. And I have three of your books now. And You know, even as a journalist, I still find, and I've been looking at studies for over a decade, but not, I wasn't educated the way that you are. Um, And it's really challenging to make heads or tails of things. So I think that it's just incredibly helpful that you've kind of done the work for us. You've done the homework, and then you are able to translate it into the recipes. And the other thing that you mentioned that I think really comes through in your books is this idea of nourishing people um instead of making food a chore and you know i think that when we get more educated about food and we start reading lots of studies it can get a little bit scary like well you know uh, just what kind of fish should i have and is that fish going to hurt me and you just start to get a little bit crazy and so i like that you make it fun and that it's about it tasting delicious. It's about enjoying your food. It's and because that just makes wanting to cook and take care of yourself that much easier.
1: Well, I think you bring up a great point because I call it nutritional analysis leads to culinary paralysis. Oh, You find out all this stuff and then and it's true. It, you, there's a fear that takes over. And then you get to the kitchen and you really don't know what to do. Yeah. Cuz like you cuz you have these two voices in your head and it can be really confusing. So I always like to come from a place of not being dogmatic but uh, th- that place of nourishment where you're going to find y- your healthy connection with food and everybody's connection is different, right? Mm-hmm. Depending on their background where they are in their journey, what's going on in their life, what kind of illnesses they're dealing with. Uh, I think you're, we're going to find in the next couple of years that the, the inter, you know the, the idea of personalized medicine, and certainly nutrition, where you're looking at people as individuals, where one size does not fit all, because, and this is an area called nutrigenomics, where mm. Through how our genes express themselves means that the types of foods that we eat are a little bit more personalized. And so, therefore, I don't, you know, we're going to have to be less and less dogmatic and more and more reaching for, you know, a little bit more of a, a holistic approach to an individual person's need in terms of what their culinary Rx is. I love that. Yeah, it is. It's very I think very liberating because what I see in just just coming across my emails that people, you know, who write in to ask me questions is a tremendous amount of confusion. Should I be on a ketogenic diet? Should I be on a paleo diet? Should I be vegan? Should I be gluten-free? Should I even I be- still
0: have all those questions and I'm 2 years out of my treatment.
1: Yeah it's really finding that I I think a person's individual balance and what I call everybody's own personal culinary GPS.
0: And there's a lot of different layers to that. Yes. Oh my gosh. That makes so much sense because, you know, in the yoga world, there's a lot of vegetarianism and and veganism. And I think that's wonderful. Um, But I think you also have to take into account like how you feel after you eat things and how you metabolize different proteins. And yeah, just going back to, I mean, the the way that I connect the yoga to the food is just becoming really, really aware of what you put in your body and then just paying attention to how you feel after you, you eat, you know? I think you make just the most excellent point about
1: when we eat, A to be mindful while we're eating, right? And then B, to notice how we feel after we've eaten something, even 20 minutes to an hour or even a day later, because that's very, very telling Mm -hmm. right there. And when you're mindful of how you're feeling, then you can make these little adjustments that suit you, Mm -hmm. you know, and. It could be whether, uh, let's say, the food might be a trigger food or uh, the food made you feel great and more energized or you felt really tired and lethargic or maybe it was too much,
0: Mm -hmm. maybe not enough. Or 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 you you just felt satiated. You just felt like, oh, I'm full. I'm not desperate for, like, more white bread. That's (laughs) right. Exactly, Exactly. Yeah. So all of those things really are are really super important. Yeah, absolutely. Um, You have just launched an online course based on the book, which I'm so excited to take. I am a total online learner as a mom and someone who doesn't, you know, have the opportunity to take weekends off and and go to workshops and things like that. Online learning is really key in my life. So can you describe to people what kinds of things you've added to the course that are not in the Cancer Fighting Kitchen book? There's a lot of robust show and
1: tell. And there are a lot of other neat little tools that aren't in the book that of course you can do online, Um, whether it's doing process videos of how a recipe is actually made. It's almost like bringing a picture to life Mm -hmm. step by step. And the other thing are downloadable PDFs that give you what I call a breakdown of a recipe in its simplest form hmm. with shopping lists and what I call uh, kitchen choreography. How are you going to do four things at once and get them done within an hour, you know? So it's like, really, I think the course is super practical. Um, and
0: again, it's, it's, it's like when you see it happening, you're like, ah, ah, uh, One of the key things I've learned from you in the past two years of being introduced to you is is that food can play a powerful role in what you describe as creating an inhospitable environment for cancer cells. And I'd love to focus on that a little bit. And you have this metaphor, which is a four legs of a stool approach to seeking out foods that are beneficial, and really for any health condition. And they are anti inflammatory foods, blood sugar regulators reducing oxidative stress, and regulation of NF-kappa B. And I'd never heard of NF-kappa B before I met you, but now I've read so much about it because I've been looking it up online. I'm wondering if we could talk through each of those categories just a little bit and you could describe what kinds of foods to seek out um, in your life. So starting with anti-inflammatory foods.
1: So, you know, I always like to think of anti-inflammatory foods as being like the most colorful of the, you know, of the food group, if it's got a lot of color, chances are it's going to be anti-inflammatory in nature. Mm. Like that would be just, again, sort of the color of the rainbow foods. They're the foods that are actually what I call the highest, have a tremendous amount of phytochemicals. And those are plant chemicals that plants create so that they can survive and thrive in the world and when we eat them their survival kit becomes our survival kit when we hear the word high in antioxidants basically those plants we're getting are going in and just getting rid of kind of all of the oxidative stress or rust in our bodies and keeping our cells in check it's like they help everybody play nice together in the sandbox. <laughs> so it's the best way I can describe it. So having all those fruits and vegetables in our lives, it serves a couple of purpose purposes. One, they're anti-inflammatory. The other thing is is that they, there are a lot of even sub-phytochemicals, but I'll get into that when we talk about NF-kappa B. The other thing that's really important in an anti-inflammatory part of the anti-inflammatory foods are healthy fats, And we don't necessarily think of fats as being anti-inflammatory, but we kind of need to re-educate ourselves because in one of the most anti-inflammatory fats is olive oil which is really super high in something called a polyphenol. Again, it's a plant chemical. And when you have, when you get a really good bottle of olive oil and it kind of has this like peppery burning sensation in the back Hmm. of the palate or the throat, that is that anti-inflammatory effect right there. And it can, it can be more powerful than an Advil. I
0: never, I've never thought of that, but I mean, it makes sense. Like olives are considered healthy fats and I never really put that together. That olive oil would also have beneficial effects. I knew that olives were really beneficial, but I never put that together.
1: (laughs) Yes. So, you know, one of the things about, um, olive oil is that kind of first press that Cold pressed olive oils, super anti inflammatory. And other things that are anti inflammatory would be wild seafood. And that would include wild salmon and mackerel and little sardines and little anchovies. And I know those little fish are not the most popular, but they're super high in anti inflammatories and high in omega 3s. And I will just
0: mention that I, I don't eat a lot of fish because I am I feel very um, conflicted about the, the overfishing and just about the toxicity of, of our oceans. But when I talked to you about that, you mentioned the smaller fish, anchovies and sardines, and you have, I tried your sardine recipe and it was delicious. It was amazing. It's now a part of a staple in my diet. So you can make those fish taste good if you are eating fish.
1: Yes. In fact, Those fish, because they're so high in really good omega-3 fatty acids, which are super anti-inflammatory, they also need a little bit of what I call citrus love. So they need a little spa of lemon juice and some herbs and some other things that
0: just make them taste really good. And if you're not eating animals, if you're not eating fish, um, where can you get your omega-3s? So there are other ways you can get omega-3s.
1: You can supplement with omega three fatty acids and there are two different kinds of supplements one is just a a fish a good fish oil the other comes from kelp the other ways to get omega-3s in your life are through walnuts through flax seeds those types of things now they don't convert to the highest level of omega-3s but they're still really good ways of of incorporating those healthy fats into your diet. So chia seeds, black seeds, and uh, walnuts for sure.
0: I went through a phase. (laughs) It was kind of a short-lived phase because I couldn't really adhere to it. But when I started taking tamoxifen, I gained a bunch of weight and I decided to try a low carb diet. So part of that, if you're being really strict, is cutting out things like sweet potatoes and carrots so, and those are, but those are powerful anti-inflammatory foods, aren't they? Oh, yes. <laughs> so it's not necessarily something you have to cut out on a cancer fighting.
1: Oh my God. In fact, no, you know what? We need our roots, right? So, and again, you know, if we were looking at this from a really holistic perspective and not just, you know, really narrow focused, Right. Um, we would see that in other cultures um, and, and other traditional medicines, Ayurvedic or traditional Chinese medicine, that those root vegetables play a really important role in the diet. You know, the roots play a role, and and certainly they're super anti-inflammatory. And sweet potatoes have a ton of really good vitamins, especially in the B B vitamins. Mm-hmm. I mean, they're calming. They're rich in magnesium. They're really high in fiber. And they're from the morning glory plant. So they're not, you know, the same as a white russet potato. So those those root vegetables definitely have a role, especially mm-hmm. as the weather gets colder. We need to have some of that underneath. So what happened? I want to know what happened. After a while, because you're also, your body needs a little bit of
0: carbohydrate. Yeah. And I, I think people are confused about the low carb diet. Right, right. I just, you know, for me, it's like you said, everything is so personal. And for me, I I actually did lose weight and I, I lost weight fairly quickly. So I was sort of encouraged by that. But I felt like it, it kind of forced me into eating a lot of meat. And I just don't, I just don't enjoy that. It just doesn't feel doesn't feel healthy for me in this kind of more macro I can't really describe it it's just, on a macro level just I don't feel good I would so much rather be eating more vegetables more plants and I missed I missed them but you know it it was not a bad experiment I felt like it regulated my blood sugar in a lot of ways I felt very satiated and so I realized that eating a little bit more protein and a little bit more healthy fat was was good for me and just Backing off of the bread a little bit was good for me, even though I don't eat white bread, but still just backing off of my portion sizes of healthy sprouted bread has been good for me and having zucchini noodles instead of having pasta was good for me. So I learned something from the experiment, it kind of also got me off of sugar in a good way. Uh, But I'm trying to be more moderate now. The positive thing sometimes when we stretch ourselves a little
1: bit is it expands our culinary horizons. Like, oh, I could do this. I could have zucchini noodles or I could spiralize sweet potatoes and make them into sweet potato noodles. Or I could, you know, add more healthy fat. Realizing that is a big key to satiation, right? Yes. And just how much of, so again, it's, it can be an opportunity, but then you realize on a whole level for you, you had to kind of make some adjustments to make that work for you, right? What people I think don't realize about a low carbohydrate diet is that vegetables in and of themselves are high in carbohydrates because, but not in a bad way, right? Right. So it's not the same kind of carbohydrate that you're going to find in, let's say, bread products and sugar and pasta and things like that, right? So plants have carbohydrates. Naturally, they have carbohydrates. And we need some of that in our lives. we We need plants in our lives. Very, again, kind of it's very confusing as to that, like,
0: what's the right amount and Correct me if I'm wrong, but part of the difference, this segues well into blood sugar regulators because part of, there's just a difference between a plant, a whole food plant carbohydrate and a simple carbohydrate. Yes. So let's talk about that. Here's the thing,
1: whole foods with all their, you know, just being all intact, right? Like the whole food, it hasn't been stripped of anything. So there's a lot of fiber in there. So for example, I mean you're eating broccoli, you're eating a tremendous you're getting a lot of fiber. And broccoli is actually it's like that's a great food that is best accompanied by a little bit of fat because it's very high in what are called fat soluble vitamins. So, to unlock those vitamins, you need a little olive, like a little fat. So, like a little bit of olive oil or eating it with some avocado or nuts or seeds or whatever, it not only makes it more fun to eat, but also more nutrient dense, more available. But here's the thing so, you eat like a sweet potato or you eat your broccoli and you're getting the fiber and then. You introduce a healthy fat, right? So fiber and fat, now we're getting into blood sugar regulation. All of a sudden, it slows down the speeding up of of glucose, right? So if you were just to eat, for example, like a couple of slices of white bread, let's say, or toast or something with nothing, nothing particular on it, let's just say jam, right, or honey that would go into your system and all of a sudden your insulin would be like woo party time right your pancreas is like oh my god we got to produce more we got to produce more right to catch up right but if you were to eat a sweet potato with some olive oil or butter or ghee or coconut oil that would be a totally different thing because you're getting the fiber And you're getting this really good fat and all of a sudden that is slowing down that response. So you don't have to produce as much insulin. So that's just like this whole concept of blood sugar regulation is really about introducing good healthy fats and nuts and seeds and fiber to your life. And that is something that Whole Foods
0: provides,
1: right, versus You know, simple carbohydrates, which have been stripped of all of that.
0: I think it's so interesting. I mean, I think in general American pop culture, we've been introduced to this idea that refined carbs can spike your blood sugar. But I think up until two years ago, I I never really thought about the fact that there were other foods that could regulate your blood sugar and not spike your blood sugar. You know, so it's just really helpful to know that. So, what are some of the, the of your favorite blood sugar regulating foods that you feel like people should incorporate regularly?
1: Good, healthy fats. So avocados, nuts, seeds, olive oil, ghee. I love ghee. It's like, I call it the royal oil. Mm, It is so delicious. And especially people who are lactose intolerant and really can't eat butter, ghee is wonderful because all of those milk solids are skinned off. So all you get is that really good nutty oil. So, and fiber. And, fi- like, for example, avocados have a ton of fiber. We don't normally think of, of foods like avocados and pistachio nuts as being like fiber rich foods, because we sometimes I think we tend to think of fiber as being like all brand or like, you know, like we're eating like something that's like wood chips. So all plants have. Fiber, good, healthy fiber. So fiber, meaning lots of vegetables and and fruits and nuts and seeds, good, healthy fats. So one example would be like if you were eating an apple, use it as a vehicle. First of all, definitely eat it with the skin and take the opportunity to slather on some almond butter on your apple. Right. And there you're getting the fiber and you're getting some nice satiating fat in there. And that's just like, ah, Mm -hmm. to know that you can just add a little healthy fat and fiber to your world really makes a big difference Yeah, In, in feeling empowered.
0: things i really appreciate about you and your books is that you include like a dessert section you include i can't remember what you call it if you call it sweet dessert. bites sweet, sweet bites. bites yeah and you know i think when someone goes through cancer um there can be some fear around having sugar because there are people who say that cancer loves sugar anyway i was one of those people who cut out sugar um but really missed having like little treats here and there so now i feel like I have options. So I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about, you know, refined sugar substitutes that you use, and then also kind of how you can combine your sweet things with like how you should combine them to keep your blood sugar regulated.
1: It's so funny because I was just reading uh, my, what are called the final proofs for the second edition of the cancer fighting kitchen. And I rewrote the sweet bite opener to explain just what you're talking about. It's really a a fine line. People, you know, just sort of like go, "Ah!" but then if you so totally take it out of your life, then it doesn't feel quite right. Your connection to food doesn't feel quite right because it's primary taste. It's the first taste we come into in the world, especially if we're breastfed, You know, it's that sweet taste. It's the first taste we come in. It's the last taste that leaves. So how do we come to terms with that in a healthy way? So, for example, first of all, I stay away from artificial sweeteners, which are just FYI. I don't malign too many foods, but artificial sweeteners are more dangerous than having, you know, like a little raw sugar. So artificial sweeteners are out. I tend to use a little bit of grade B. Well, it's not grade B anymore. um, Maple sugar, I mean, maple syrup. um, And it used to be called grade B, but now it's called grade A dark amber. So it's,
0: ah, I was looking for grade B in the grocery store the other day and I couldn't find it. Okay. They changed it. They changed it because
1: they felt like when people looked at the categories that they thought that B was inferior. So B, the, or the dark amber, has more mineral content in it. So I really like using that in sweets. And also coconut palm sugar is another, you know, that comes from the coconut it is much lower in the glycemic load. So those are two sweeteners I like. And then I'm a big fan, like, I have a recipe, it's a chocolate date nut truffle, and it's in the Cancer Fighting Kitchen, and I have a chocolate cherry walnut truffle in the Healthy Mind Cookbook, and they're made with dates. And dates, talk about a sweet bite, right? They've been around forever, and they they kind of are a double threat, in a good way. So they're very high in fiber. Dates are extremely high in fiber, And then when you mix them up with a little bit of fat, they kind of neutralize themselves. So you could take a date and you could put a little bit of a nut butter on them, like cashew butter, and then like a teeny bit of dark chocolate on top and pop that into your mouth and feel totally satiated.
0: Yeah,
1: you're all set. And it's just like one example, but... Again, making sure that you're constantly looking at how you're using your, what I call your sweet budget. And that's understanding your, your GPS, right? So your culinary GPS. And, you know, there are going to be times when, um, you know, you're going to be at a birthday party with your kid. You're going to want a piece of cake and you decide you're going to have one. And there are two ways that you can have it. And this is where mindfulness comes in. You can have it and say, I am having a piece of cake, right? And we am going to be really mindful about it. And I'm not going to put myself on a guilt trip because I guarantee you the guilt trip that you could put yourself on will increase the stress hormones in your body. And that's really a bad mixture of stress and sugar. So, yeah. you know, there are going to be times in our, you know, there are always times in our lives where we... Where we choose to go off the reservation, it's all about knowing how to get back to the reservation.
0: Right. It's all about having like a strong foundation so that, yeah, when you fall off the wagon on occasion, you just get back right on and you don't even, you know, like you said, you don't, it doesn't become self flagellation. Yes. So let's talk about reducing oxidative stress. And this is a category that I know very little about. So we talked talked a little bit
1: about that with fruits and vegetables. So as we age, or as we are exposed to more and more environmental issues, you know, more environmental hidden pollutants or whatever, right? We you know, all of those things can stir around in our bodies and create free radicals. And and those are like, um, they're the things that cause uh, what I call the rust in our bodies. It would be like the perfect example of looking at oxidative stress and free radicals is if I cut open an apple and on one side of the apple, I squeeze it with some lemon juice to keep it from turning brown. And the other half turns brown because it has been exposed to the elements, right? That's the internal rust I'm talking about. So the more, more plant foods that we can get in that are really high in antioxidants, i.e. the cruciferous vegetables, all the, you know, that just have tremendous amounts of vitamins A, B, C, D, E, And all of those, it's like they go in like little vacuum cleaners and they just vacuum up the rust. So it's really, mm-hmm. you know, when you think about oxidative stress, I like to think about it as like dust bunnies running around. You know, what do you do in your house you, to keep it clean? You sweep, you vacuum. So the more antioxidants that really come from the plant family that you can incorporate into your life, the more you're controlling that oxidative stress inside your body.
0: I am so curious. I, would coffee contribute to oxidative stress or is it? does it have phytochemicals that would? So it's very high in
1: antioxidants. And again, here is the thing. It always depends on the quality of the foods, right? So for example, if you went to around the corner coffee shop And you got a, you know, a double latte with all the shots of whatever and the whatever, whatever. That's not the same as having a cup of like a good organic cup of coffee that you brew yourself. And maybe you add some like hazelnut milk to it or, you know, you create your own yum. So, again, it's where's the coffee coming from? and. Is it a good quality coffee and you're going to make it the best cup of coffee? So, yes, I mean, cacao has a tremendous amount of antioxidants in it. So the other thing about coffee is that it's knowing how much you can deal with. So, for example, this is something that's a genetic predisposition. You're either caffeine sensitive or you're not. My husband can drink coffee until 10 o'clock at night and sleep like a baby. Wow. I have to drink my one cup of sacred coffee in the morning, and that it speeds me through. If I have it after four o'clock, not such a great thing. And other things that are really high, um, that are, I should say, that are really high in antioxidants, too, um, are green teas and and black teas, and white teas. So teas, especially the greens, are, again, really high in antioxidants as well.
0: And wine. When I talked to um, a nutritionist at UCSF, she said, you know, a lot of people who've had cancer will choose to give up alcohol because even though there are some wonderful properties in wine, it, can, it is also considered a toxin. So it's, I, I feel like that's kind of like, use at your own discretion.
1: The thing about wine I think is important to know, it's not really about the antioxidants in it, you know, because yeah, there's red wine and there's some resveratrol and whatever, but wine is best drunk the way the Europeans drink it. And that is with food because really I have a hard time calling wine a toxin because it's like villainizing it. And I don't like to do that. In our culture, we tend to, to drink wine without food. You know, it's like we come home, we have a glass of wine. Or at a party or something. So really, if we the Europeans approach it very differently. They they incorporate wine into the act of eating. And so there's food that is absorbing it. So when you drink it by itself, it can really kind of punch up your insulin, right? versus when you are drinking it in small quantities while you're eating it and really enjoying it with your food, it's a totally, it's a game changer. It's very different. So yeah, I get a lot of that. People ask about wine all the time. And again, it's something, again, you want to obviously, if you're drinking wine, you want to drink it in moderation, and you want to pick the best you can.
0: You want to savor that
1: with, food.
0: Okay. So our last leg of the stool is perhaps the most complicated for you to have to explain, um, but it's not complicated to execute in your life. Regulation of NF Kappa B, which is also basically this idea of creating an environment where cancer cells die. Is that right? Yes. Okay. (laughs) Okay. So can you talk about what is NF Kappa B?
1: Basically what NF Kappa B is, is it's a pathway that helps control the body's immune response. So when NF-kappa B is improperly regulated, chronic inflammation that may lead to cancer can occur. So there are things, right, that control NF-kappa B. NF-kappa B, if it's not properly regulated, it is like leaving your house with teenagers in it. So you go out and for a nice evening and you leave teenagers unsupervised in your house and you come back and your house is trashed. (laughs) You could also leave toddlers, right? (laughs) Or toddlers. To control NF-kappa B, right? It's like having the the parent in the house, right? So here's an example. If we eat a lot of processed foods and diet drinks and, you know, we smoke and we drink and we are in total, like we're acting like, you know, a teenager, right? In in every respect, right? Even if we're too old to be doing that (laughs) and our body is like, no, no no, not another Twinkie, right? That is causing a tremendous amount of inflammation and and absolutely, there's no regulatory, there's no regulation. So who are the regulators? The regulators are a lot of plant foods, but really a lot of regulators are herbs and spices, not to be dismissed, right? Right that herbs and spices play a huge role in creating what's called cell apoptosis, which is cell suicide. So, you know, when your body has gone rogue and your you know cells are splitting and dividing and doing all sorts of crazy things, when you shift your diet and your lifestyle, right, you can start reining in and control NF-kappa B and the inflammation in your body. And truly, it's amazing the role that herbs and spices play in doing it. And I'll just give you an example of one great NF-kappa B inhibitor, and that would be mint. And we can all grow mint outside. It's a weed. So uh, like something like mint, five mint leaves a day. Oh, wow. Cilantro. Cilantro parsley. These are things that we can chop up and put in our food or we can drink mint tea or cinnamon, ginger, Mm -hmm. cumin, coriander, turmeric, all of these spices, curries. And they're all things that make your food delicious. (laughs) Exactly. So all Mm -hmm. these things, it's like, oh my God, these are the things that can control NF-kappa B. So Um, And NF-kappa B plays, uh, you know, a role not just in cancer, but also in um, dementias and other chronic illnesses. So NF-kappa B is like keeping inflammation in check, which kind of brings us full circle and knowing that there is, again, like, oh, my gosh, I really can have control over this by what I put on the end of my fork. Yes, I can.
0: Yeah, I love it. I also love that in your books, you have um, these drizzles, you have really simple recipes for getting these herbs and spices into your life. And, you know, one of the things that I think is really unique about your approach is that you offer these simple recipes that make food taste good, but I feel like you don't use crazy exotic ingredients. Like I love Ottolenghi and I love his cookbooks, but I always feel like I have to go to Turkey or something to get all, all of the things that are required. And with you, now that I've cooked with your cookbooks for a while, I feel like if I have olive oil, sea salt, lemon, maple syrup in my house, and then if whichever um, herbs I want to get that week or, you know, or whichever spices I want to cook with, I can make some really delicious sauces or dressings or drizzles or whatever you want to call them. And I can use them, and all of my food for that week, I can use them in my lentils or with my eggs or with my proteins or with my vegetables. And so I feel like I just want to mention that you make it really easy to incorporate these things into your weekly menu.
1: Well, I call them the dollops of yum. Mm-hmm. And you know what? You're, they, they're, they're designed to, to do two things. One, up the flavor. And two, to add all of those great nutrients so it, it's a double whammy. But it's like putting a pin on a black dress.
0: Yeah. Um, I have one more question about cinnamon. I listened to a podcast long ago about all these, about the different kinds of cinnamon. If I just go to the grocery store and buy organic cinnamon, will I be getting the, the correct cinnamon to get the health benefits or is there a specific kind I should look for?
1: Saigon cinnamon, probably the most, but you know, a good organic cinnamon is fine. You will get plenty. Believe me. I mean, there is so much antioxidant power in a quarter of a teaspoon of cinnamon. In fact, more antioxidants in a quarter of a teaspoon of cinnamon than a half a cup of blueberries.
0: Wow. I did not know that. It's outrageous.
1: And all these spices, right, they accumulate. You know, it's not just like, oh, I have to have like a whole tablespoon of cinnamon in one sitting. It's adding spices and herbs
0: to your life. It accumulates. Wow. That's, that's great. So just a little bit goes a long way. Yeah. Yeah. Doable. Um, You have a new book coming out soon, which I'm so excited to pre-order. And I just want to talk about it a little bit, especially because I, I'm guessing there are probably a lot of herbs and spices in this cookbook and it's a book all about soups. Yes. Every single soup
1: in this book is just filled with herbs and spices, but accessibly. I mean, like one of the things you kind of can get a sense is just what you need to even have in your spice collection. There's a whole kind of front of the book that really explains the art of making soup and what you do need to have in your pantry. And of course, it features. My hallmark magic mineral broth as my and all the different ways you can take that broth and with herbs and spices make it even more intense into an immune boosting broth or a Thai coconut broth or you know different bone broths. and yeah, so it's really it's it's sixty recipes. so it's really approachable. And uh, the photography is
0: off the charts, I have to say. You'll look at it and go,
1: <gasps> yum.
0: I think it's, is it Eva Kalenko? I saw on your website. My friend, Ali, works with her. My, my A friend of mine who's a graphic designer. Yeah, she's amazing.
1: She's so unbelievably talented. I can't, oh, she brought this to life. Authors pray kind of imagery, you know,
0: it does sort of jump off the page and and make you want to eat the food. Yeah. Is it available for pre-order now on your website? Okay. Yes. Great. So you can go to Amazon or you can go to my website. It's
1: available for pre-order and it goes um, on sale September 6th. So not that far away. Yeah. And it's called clean soups, clean soups. And the subtitle is simple nourishing recipes for health and vitality. Awesome. Perfect for fall too and winter coming up. Yes. And I just want to say when you incorporate more soups into your life, it's like you're incorporating all the things that we've just talked about. You know, it's like, it's a great way to get vegetables in. It's a great way to get healthy fats in. It's a great way to get herbs and spices in all of those nutrient dense things. But somehow when it's distilled in a bowl, it's like giving yourself a culinary hug.
0: Yeah, it, it is.
1: It's, it's true. It's like you don't feel like, oh, I'm getting all my nutrition today.
0: It's like you know. It's so true. It's like an alchemy. I mean, it's just yeah, totally very. Healing. Totally an alchemy. Yeah, yeah. It's very alchemy at its best. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much, Rebecca. I, you know, as I said, I'm a super fan, and um, I just. I so appreciate all the work that you're doing in the world. It benefits so many people and I just appreciate your time. Thanks for being here. Oh, thank you so much, Andrea. What a treat. (laughs) Okay. Take care. Bye. Hey guys. I hope you feel like you learned something from that interview. I know that I did. I will put links to all of Rebecca's work, her cookbooks, her new course, some of the interviews I've done with her on the blog, as well as her own blog, which has some sample recipes that you can try. I'll put those on the show notes page, which you can find at yogalandpodcast.com slash episode 15. And as always, thanks for listening. Leave a review on iTunes if you enjoyed the podcast and enjoy your practice.